Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. When you were a kid, you would fall asleep on a winter night dreaming of waking up to a snow day, though children that lived in the southern part of the U.S. had a dream a little bit harder. You didn't have to go to school and you could play in the snow all day. Well, my guests today spend their days playing in snow and have made a career out of it. Steve Connie and Luke Stone are members of the Powder Chasers team that travels across the Rockies to forecast the biggest snowstorms to give you the freshest powder for your weekend ski trip. How will this upcoming La Nina winter impact their chases? Let's find out. Now, right now we have Steve with us and uh, perhaps a little later we'll have Luke. Steve, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Good morning. Yes. Are now, you, Steve, there's, there's a no, I'm sorry. There's a question. Again, we're keep in mind to the listeners here. We're all doing this remotely in the era of COVID. So uh, bear with some of the audio challenges and overtalk that happens. Uh, I, I see an occasional comment or two in the reviews about that, but it's just the reality of what we're in. But Steve, there's a question that we ask all weather geeks guest. How'd you get into what you do? Are you a weather geek and how'd you get into it? Is it something from your youth or something that experience? How'd you get into this? Oh, you just hit it right on the nail. I think your intro actually uh, brought back some memories as a child waking up every morning. Um, I grew up in New York, actually, um, in the suburbs. And I can remember when I was just two and three years old, I would wake up every night just to watch a snowplow go by. That to me was exciting. And uh, I lived on a big hill. So sledding was real popular. I mean, that was all I wanted to do was jump out of bed and go sledding down our hill. Um, I've always loved snow. I almost want to say it's something that was just inborn as a kid. I was shoveling my parents' driveway when I was like four years old. Um, you know, and, and, and back, you know, back in the day, not the old, old days, but just even 15 years ago or 20 years ago, um, I was glued to the Weather Channel, um, you know, in, in my school years. Um, uh, in, in fact, uh, ironically, at Jackson Hole, they have a. They used to have a television side, a television set outside in the tram line, um, and they would actually play the Weather Channel, and I would just stop and watch. You know, watch the maps. And I've always loved snow. Um, and, you know, I'm going on uh, 59 right now, and uh, every year I I say to myself, "Is it ever going to wean?" And it just hasn't. <laughs> And, you know, it's interesting. I grew up in Georgia and I, I still live in Georgia after a, a stint in the mid-Atlantic region. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things that here in where we live, I, I fear kids aren't going to have snow days anymore. We, even before COVID-19, we had something instituted here in Gwinnett County, where I live, called 
digital learning days where st students were going online even before COVID. Right. Uh, I fear that in the era of COVID and now so much online schooling and access from the, I, I, my, I really worry that our kids are going to lose those great snow days. So we, we I know. Let me, I, read, I read about that the other day and I was just thinking, you know, every kid wants a school day, a snow day. I mean, that's yeah, what it's an interesting phenomenon. <laughs> let, me give, let me give the listeners a little of your background, Steve. Steve is the founder and editor of Powder Chasers. He first started skiing and chasing snowstorms while growing up in New England or New York, I believe. Yeah. Uh, has followed weather patterns across the Rockies for over 30 years. He's a former ski patroller and skis over 15 inches of powder each season. Uh, your partner is Luke Stone, who we hope will be able to join us today, who is the editor of Powder Chases and the manager of the social media channels. He currently works full time in clinical research, but is pursuing a higher ed degree in atmospheric sciences at the University of Utah as well. Uh, this is really an interesting conversation today. I think people are familiar with storm chasers, tornado chasers, hurricane right. chasers. But powder chasers. Now we've got what, powder chasers. What is what is it about the bright and white snow that makes you guys geek out? Oh my God! Well, it's actually you mentioned fifteen inches a year. It's actually more like seven hundred inches a year. Oh no! I thought I said. I'm, I'm sorry if I said that. I, I have five hundred to seven hundred on my notes. I may have missed seven hundred. My yeah. bad. <laughs> um, God, it. You know, it's funny. Me and Luke have had this conversation. Um, sometimes we'll chase a storm. And of course, you know, we both snowboard. I used to ski and I used to ski patrol at Sunday River in Maine. But, you know, half the fun is the chase. It's, it's the excitement and the adrenaline. Um, maybe, and I don't tornado chase or anything like that, but I'm, I'm sure they'll tell you, hey, it's the preparation and the anticipation that gets them going and the drive. I mean, you know, once we hit snow and we're driving, it's just, it's game on. And, uh, you know, that's half the excitement, looking at the weather maps and deciding what we're going to do, looking at the GFS and the Euro and, and, and getting excited. Wow, this is getting bigger now. You know, it's, this, is, this is hopeful. Um, so I think it's a little bit of adrenaline in, in the actual chase itself. Um, but, you know, versus a tornado chaser, we want to get there just before the storm hits. You know, we've learned over the years, you don't want to be stuck driving uh, eight hours and, and, and then all of a sudden you hit the snow line three hours left and you're driving. That takes another eight hours. So, the goal is, is timing and, and we'll, yeah. use, we'll use the weather models really closely to try to get in somewhere just before it's hit. And we have a really stringent criteria as to when we're going to chase or what we're going to chase. And our decisions are based on a lot of different things. Well, let's, 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 let's dive into that. Let's plunge into the snow. Let's, let's plunge into your criteria because I'm curious about sort of what, what are your favorite models? I mean, obviously you mentioned GFS and Euro, the sort of, large scale yeah. models, synoptic scale models, but I imagine you might use some of the more regional models, the HRRR and the uh, and others as well, yeah. the NAM. So let's just get into sort of your meteorological technique and methodology. Well, we'll look, you know, a lot of it's experience as well. Um, you know, as far as wind directions, that's really very important to us. We also want to look at wind speeds. Um, you know, as a, as a skier snowboarder, some of our criteria is dependent upon wind. We don't want that snow to be packed or windblown. Uh, we want to be able to sink into it. You know, we want e either medium or light density snow. Temperatures are really important to us. We're always looking at the 700 millibar temperatures at 10,000 feet. Most of our mountains out here um, in the Rockies will, will hit that 10,000 mark, especially in Colorado and Utah. As you go further west towards the northwest, 
you know, we may start at 4,800 or 4,000 feet bases and the, the summits there are really around 7,000 feet. Um, so we'll look at the 850 temperatures, which yeah. is today at 4,800. Um, and, you know, we want to see temperatures um, well below zero, well below zero at 10,000 feet. And, and, you know, if we go to the Northwest, which is actually a, a chase that I really enjoy, even living, <laughs> even living in Colorado and Utah, I go back and forth between two places. Um, you know, we don't want to go out there if it's going to be a rain-snow mix line at the base. You know, we want to see the snow levels well below the base. So in the Northwest, we want to see snow levels no greater than 3,000 feet which is a thousand feet below the base. And in the Rockies, we want to see 10,000 foot temperatures, at least in the, maybe the negative 10 or colder ranges. And, and uh, obviously the snow changes. Yeah. And I want to kind of do a little weather 101 for our listeners here, because uh, we just heard some really awesome geeky terms from Steve Connie and to the meteorologist or the meteorologist focused uh, listener, you knew what they meant. But he mentioned the 850 millibar level or the 700 millibar level. Uh, for those of you that aren't meteorologists, but just really fascinated by it, um, as we go up in altitude uh, or elevation, if you're actually on the mountain, let me, let me just geek out on that for a second because people confuse the two. And my students at the University of Georgia always find this interesting. Elevation is actually when you're on land and sort of, you know, the city of Denver has an elevation of a certain number of thousand feet. Altitude is actually off the land, if you will. So if you're on a mountain, you're at an elevation. But if you jump off the mountain, you're at an altitude. That's the way I always teach my students. Right, right. But, you know, as we go up in the atmosphere, the pressure is decreasing. So we're roughly a thousand or so millibars here at the surface, thousand, thirteen, so forth, whatever it is, the time of season. But as we go up, we get up to 900 millibars, 850 millibars, 700, and so forth. And so uh, as the millibar level that you heard Steve talking about was getting smaller, that means we're getting higher in the in, in the atmosphere. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure our weather geeks and listeners who perhaps may not be familiar with that understood that. Now, what type of snow is best for riding? Um, and I heard you sort of allude to this. I mean, wet snow, dry snow, packed snow, what, what's best for riding and skiing? You know, you could debate this all day long with skiers. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, there's so many different aspects. Um, Luke and I have this conversation constantly. Um, if I'm going to a mountain, it, a lot of it also depends on what happened the day before. And we're looking at that. So if I go to a ski area and it was, um, say it was 35 degrees during the day, which is pretty warm in midwinter, or maybe even 38, that snow is going to be pretty wet and have a, a fair amount of moisture. If all of a sudden we see a good storm coming and it's a really sharp gradient cold front that just slams into the Rockies. So the temperatures go from say 35 to 17 in a matter of two or three hours, which is very common here. What, what we're, what we're going to be faced with is a hard crusty surface underneath. So when we look to chase a storm, we're looking at current conditions um, and how the storm comes in. I mean, if it comes in really cold and it doesn't come in warm, a lot of times we'll get lucky, a storm will come in relatively warm and put a good base layer down, and then it will cool down afterwards. That's exactly, that's the ideal storm. Um, we see that quite a bit in certain areas. Uh, the Northwest especially, they don't tend to get, you know, some people say, wow, why would you ski the Northwest? You know, you would think it'd be wet, right, rain. That's not necessarily true. I mean, they have mountaintops around 7,000 feet. It snows in Seattle every year. So, yeah. You know, when we go to the Northwest, one nice thing about a Northwest storm is they're generally not overly cold. So you're not going to see temperatures 
in the single digits, you know, very rarely, maybe at mountaintop on occasion. Um, you know, in Seattle, I think 20, high 20s, low 30s is about as cold as it gets there. So when, when those storms come in and dump two to three feet of snow, they're generally pretty medium density storms and they cover up everything below. As snowboarders, we don't like bumps. Some skiers love bumps. So, um, but you know, we, we want a nice, smooth, uh, deep surface that, you know, we're not filling the snow from the day before. So we want something medium density or colder, but we don't want a storm to come in too cold where it's just too light and fluffy. You feel the bottom um, and, you know, or you may have a crust layer underneath. Um, and then on the other side, you don't want something too wet, uh, you know, freezing levels, you know, right at the base or maybe 28 to 32, like snow quality at around 27 to say 32 degrees is going to be a fairly wet storm. And then you're just riding on top. And I, I'm, I'm actually oddly, and it's amazing that I haven't been because I've actually wanted to do it, but I've actually never been skiing. And the scientist in me is asking, is there some kind of a snow ski, uh, snow condition index? And in other words, can I pull up something and said, the snow conditions are a five today for skiing. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good and funny. It's a funny thing you mentioned that Luke and I were just talking about powder chasers on our website is uh, maybe offering a snow index, just like you said. And we, d we discuss what that would include. And we would most likely include um, distance and chasing, snow quality. Um, we might also look, and obviously depth, depth, snow quality. We'd look at winds, um, distance. Uh, we talked about cost. And, and actually, we threw that out. <laughs> when you're addicted to powder, it's kind of like, you know what? We, we got to chase this storm now. We don't, we'll figure out how to make it work. But um, there's a lot of factors that go into it. And now with COVID, um, the ski industry is faced with some new challenges, obviously. And a lot of resorts are requiring reservations. That's becoming, you know, the norm now. Uh, some require it for ski passes and tickets. Some you don't even, some won't even allow you to walk up to a ticket window and buy a ticket. So, you know, if you're a pass holder, uh, in some cases, you'll need to make a reservation to make sure you can get in. And that's, that's going to present a challenge for Luke and I just because we're going to be looking out seven to ten days now at maybe the ensembles and saying, hey, we need to make a reservation ten days in advance. Because if, if, if the word gets out in the weather community seven days before everyone's going to be booking, we won't be able to get into these resorts. So it's, it, this is going to be a whole new world. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Steve. Is it Connie or Coney? I want to make sure Connie. I get it right. It's <laughs> Connie. Yeah. And he's one of the powder chasers. Powder chasers is a thing. I, I learned this as we were setting up the show, and it's really fascinating to kind of hear exactly what you do. His partner is Luke Stone, who uh, may have had some issues joining us today, but shout out to Luke if he doesn't join us, uh, but hopefully he we still will get a chance to hear from Luke later in the 
podcast as well. Steve's definitely holding down the fort. So Steve, thank you so much. Steve's actually the founder and editor of Powder Chasers. So I, I want to continue in this discussion because you mentioned sort of the difference between the Rockies and the Northwest and the Cascades. Right. Uh, it's my understanding that the best skiing and snowboarding is in the Rockies. And perhaps it's for some of the reasons that you mentioned in terms of just the, just the quality of the snow. Yeah, I mean, the Rockies tend to get drier snow. Um, as the storms come across, uh, they're drying out. The temperatures are colder because we have higher elevations. Um, but, you know, each area really has its own merits. Um, Luke and I and others have chased a lot of storms into the Northwest. Just like I said earlier, you know, you could have a complete refresh of that medium density deep snow. And, you know, when those really moist um, – systems come into the northwest especially if you have a um pineapple express if you will um or or um an atmospheric river okay you could see you know two to four feet in a matter of three days easily maybe five feet and, and when i say refresh i mean that mountain is completely covered there's no more bumps there's you know everything is just good to go you can let it go and and like I said, the snow levels can drop easily into the 2,500, 2,000 foot range. Bases at 4,000 feet, you're good to go. In the, in the Sierra, Lake Tahoe, for instance, uh, they also will get wetter snow, but their snow levels also will go down. And their snow levels will go way down below the valley floor. Same situation. They tend to get deeper storms in a shorter amount of time in a lot of cases. But, you know, when you, when you look at some anomalies such as Utah, and the snow will tend to be drier there. And like I said earlier, it's not always, it depends on the storm. I mean, sometimes it's not better. If it goes from warm to cold, you've got a whole different situation. But in Utah, uh, the aspects of the mountains and the cottonwoods, for instance, like Alton, Snowbird especially, or Solitude and Brighton, um, some of those storms just get trapped in those canyons and you could easily see 18 inches in a matter of eight hours. Uh, the next question that I want to ask you was triggered by something you said, because you, you mentioned atmospheric rivers. It's clearly you have a very uh, amazing uh, knowledge and grasp of meteorology, even though you're not necessarily a trained meteorologist. By the way, an atmospheric river for the listeners is a sort of narrow plume of moisture in the atmosphere that we actually track with satellite data. It's uh, colloquially being called the Pineapple Express there in California. But these atmospheric rivers, we've studied them in meteorology, and they can be significant sources of moisture, rainfall, and snow in the Northwest and in Western parts of the U.S. There are these ribbons. If you look in the satellite at moisture and wind, there are these narrow ribbons of moisture and they kind of set up in certain regions. It's sort of like a fire hose of moisture for these precipitating systems. But my question is, I know that Luke is actually formerly in a um, meteorology or atmospheric sciences program at Utah. How did you sort of gain your sort of meteorological knowledge and expertise over time and understanding patterns and the concepts? Is it just a, a labor of love or passion for you? It's really been a labor of love, um, reading and just experience of looking at uh, models. I mean, uh, you know, originally when I started looking at models, I was just looking at real basic maps. Um, and, um, you know, Luke has actually taught me a lot as well. So, you know, and, and between the two of us, I've, I've got way, way more chase experience. I mean, I am the master of chasing storms. He's learned a heck of a lot from me. 
And I, I'd love to tell you about some chases that we've had, just as for excitement. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, that's totally where I'm going with this. I want to get into the chases. Oh, so with that, with that setup, yeah. that's a, my next question was, uh, walk us through the life of a powder chaser. So yeah. tell us about some of your more interesting and perhaps harrowing chases. We, I've had a lot of them, and I wish I wrote them down before the podcast, but let's just let's shoot from the hip, if you will. Sure. Um, I. I mean, one thing I really love is what I call the trifecta. And I call it the, um, the trifecta is when I can hit the same storm three times in three states. And I've done it. I've done it several times, actually. So it would be a storm chase where I would fly out to the northwest, ski a foot and a half or two feet of powder in the Cascades, um, which I've done. You know, I've, I've hit Crystal Mountain. It's one, of my, it's one of my go-to mountains out there, or Stevens Pass, maybe sometimes Mount Baker. Um, and I'll jump on a plane that night after skiing. You know, I'm satisfied. If I get two feet of powder in one day, I'll jump on a plane, fly back to Utah. By that time, and you know, if the storm comes in like 4, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the Cascades, you're getting it all day. It's not really hitting the Rockies until that night. So then I'll grab it in the Utah mountains, and then I'll get in my car and drive to Colorado and catch it a third time. Uh, another chase I love is starting up in Wyoming and heading down through Utah because it's all drive territory for me. Um, Jackson Hole is only about four and a half hours from where I live in Park City. Grand Targhees in Wyoming as well. And, you know, I may ski Utah one day and then I'll just jump in the car and go to Colorado and I'll catch it three times. Wow. Another, thing, another thing that happens is you, you may have wind closures at resorts. So if your lifts aren't spinning, if you find out that some of your favorite resorts, the lifts weren't spinning at your best terrain and the best terrain generally is fairly high up. So a lot of times there'll be wind closures. You may jump, you know, you may say, hey, we got an opportunity to hit day four here. And then you catch it fresh at a fourth time. Last year, um, Luke, myself, and a colleague, Tommy, uh, Tommy had never actually been to the Northwest. Uh, we chased a really good storm at Crystal Mountain. I, I believe it was around two feet. And most of it was after the lifts closed, which is another important aspect where we look at. We want fresh snow that hasn't been skied. And um, we had a great day, and it was continuing to snow. And we, we usually convene in a hotel lobby, and we'll just sit there with our computers for 15 minutes arguing about the models. You know, <laughs> like, oh, crap. Look like at all weather geeks do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Oh my God. Well, the Euro has it here, but the GFS has it here. And look at, look at the HRR. It's going nuts, you know, and Luke will say, well, the HRR is on drugs right now, you know? So it's kind of like, what are we going to do? And I was actually inclined to stay in the Northwest. Um, I was thinking, you know, it's going to continue to snow here. And Luke was like, well, they're only going to get another seven to eight inches. You know, and to some people that may seem like a lot <laughs> to us, that's nothing. And Suddenly, it's 7 o'clock at night. Okay, we have no plane reservations or anything. We're sitting in the hotel lobby, um, and Luke says, oh, my God, look at this. He looks, pulls up the NAM and a few other things. He pulls up the University of Utah plumes. We look at those as well, and uh, the SREFs and the NAEFS. And um, he said, I think the cottonwoods in Utah are going to get two feet tonight. I said, really? He says, yeah, it's good northwest flow. And I'm looking at my watch saying, I don't even know if I can get a plane back. There was a flight in exactly an hour and a half from that point. I scrambled to get on that plane. I had to, I left my, I literally left my ski gear in the lobby of the hotel. I said to the manager, I said, we'll be back for it. I said, let's put it in the storage closet. Wow. <laughs> so, and I'm a member of the, uh, you know, I'm a gold member at, uh, at Marriott. So the guy's like, oh yeah, we'll take care of you. And he, he put everything away for us. I literally jumped in the shuttle 
in my ski clothes. So I still have my ski boots on. I think I still have my ski boots on. <laughs> and I jumped on the next plane back to Salt Lake. And Luke and Tommy took another flight after me. And sure enough, the Cottonwoods had two feet that day. It was wow. one of the best days. The sad news, talk about frustration. Frustration is when you go to a place and it doesn't happen. You know, and and we got there and, and uh, both Tommy and Luke skis did not arrive on that plane. Oh, wow. And Tommy, Tommy's not from Utah. He had nothing. So he ended up missing out on that day. Luke, fortunately, who lives in Salt Lake, had an, uh, a spare set of clothes and another snowboard. So he was able to get up there. But that would have been tragic because I tell you, it was one of the best days of the year last year. Wow. That, that is amazing. We're talking with Steve Connolly, Connie, I should say, about powder chasing. You just heard uh, a really interesting story. Now, I, I can imagine there are dangers with what you do as well. I mean, yeah. one of my producers wanted to ask if you've experienced any avalanches. Um, you know, if we stay within resort boundaries, generally, um, you're never 100% safe. And, you know, it's, it's a fine line with ski area liability and things. But honestly, the dangers and avalanches are real. And uh, ski patrols do a really good job and we generally trust the avalanche mitigation in resort boundaries and we normally stay within resort boundaries. Um, we do some back, we've done backcountry this year. I've already been out uh, twice this year actually, um, uphill for uh, skinning, snowboard, splitboarding, at both at Beaver Mountain and at Grand Targhee in Wyoming. Beaver Mountain's a small little mountain in northern Utah. So we do have avalanche equipment. I personally have never been involved in a major avalanche. I've had small slough avalanches occur. Um, and for the most part, we, you know, we wear beacons. And if you stay within resort boundaries, I would say most folks are generally safe, but there's no such thing as you're always gonna be safe. But overall, it's a safe sport. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Back on the Weather Geeks podcast, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Steve Connie. He's one of the powder chasers, and we're talking about chasing the country's freshest powder. And his partner is Luke Stone, who I don't think Luke's going to be able to join us today after all, but Steve is certainly holding on the fort. This has been a fascinating discussion. Now, uh, we're in a La Nina. Uh, and for the listeners that are, are, are versed in the ENSO cycle, La Nina is the cool phase of the El Nino-La Nina uh, cycle there, or the ENSO cycle. And so we have colder or cooler than normal, normal temperatures in the East Central and, and Eastern Pacific. And both La Nina and El Nino, through what we call teleconnection patterns, their changes to the jet stream and so forth, can affect weather well downstream in the U.S. and perhaps even in other parts of the world. What is the expected impact of La Nina on what you do, the snow uh, world out there in the West? I mean, are there any relationships or rules of thumb based on your experience? Yeah, there are. Um, and, you know, there's always exceptions. Um, Luke has always said to me, you know, La Nina generally 
is going to be a little cooler. Like you said, it's a cooler pattern. Um, I think it really helps the Northwest, especially. Um, they tend to see more moisture and it's colder. Um, it looks like Lou's going to join us now, by the way. Yeah, it sounds like uh, I, I heard a ding. You heard so a ding. If, if Josh is uh, online, maybe we can allow Luke to jump in as well now. And we'd love to have him for this final segment. And with, with La Nina, um, we're seeing cooler temperatures, which is good because we, you know, we as the picky powder chasers, if you will, um, you know, we don't want wet snow. Um, the Northwest already has done very well. We've actually seen uh, some correlation and, you know, that could always change. Um, so I think it's better mainly for the Northern Rockies. Um, Wyoming and Montana have done very well so far this year, even though we're very early in the season. But I'd say, like you said earlier, cooler and maybe a little further influence to the north. The mountains of Utah, especially the Salt Lake City area, and even Colorado tend to sit in the middle. So El Nino or La Nina can be good years for them. There's no real rhyme or reason there. Uh, I would say the San Juans, the Southern Rockies, may not benefit as much with La Nina. However, already this year, uh, Wolf Creek uh, down in Southern Colorado has already seen several big storms of two to three feet. So, you know, and, and they completely kind of missed that I-70 corridor. Yeah, and I, I want to sort of clarify that La Nina certainly will have a cooling impact for some regions, but for some regions, other regions, uh, because of the jet stream patterns, it might be a milder winter than, than usual. So it just depends on what sort of, sort of side of that trough ridge axis you're on right. as the jet stream pattern is modified. But you're certainly for you all, you, you probably are more in the sort of troughiness. And so you would certainly have cooler conditions. For, I think like. the further north, the better. Yeah, exactly. So um, a question that comes to mind is how has social media, I, I, and I want to get, I, take this as an opportunity to give us your website or any social media presence you have, sure. because my question is how has social media impacted or affected your, your power, your snow chasing or powder chasing? Wow. Well, I, I can tell you when I powder chase younger in my teens and my twenties, before even uh, internet, way before internet. Um, I used to call, I used to get on the phone and call hotels and say, listen, could you, what's it doing up there? You know, it's the only, it's the only information I had. I couldn't look at radar. I couldn't look at models. And honestly, I'm thinking back of the old days. The old days were great because nobody knew what was going on. So I was always a step ahead of everyone and there'd be nobody on the slopes on a powder day. You know, they would find out about the snow when they woke up in the morning and I'd already be driving at 5 a.m. And I'd say, hey, can you do me a favor and step outside, night auditor, gas station? And um, they would give me a report and I would, of course, I'd have to bring them a reward afterwards, <laughs> whether it be a six pack or whatever. Right. But I had my trusty weather observers that I could call, including even the, the, uh, the highway department garage on top of the Eisenhower Tunnel. I had all those secret numbers. So, I, and I had I, Rabbit Ears Pass in, in Colorado, I'd call that that number and some guy would answer the phone at three o'clock in the morning in a plow truck, you know, but social media and even internet have really um, exploded the knowledge base of folks um, looking at weather and learning what's going to happen. And, you know, there's no more secrets, you know, I'll, I'll throw the web in there as well. And we, we operate a website, powderchasers.com and on, on Instagram, we're at powder chasers and at Facebook, we're at, at, at powder chasers. And okay. our volume has quadrupled in the last three to four years. I mean, we're well, exploding. It's going to explode even more after weather. <laughs> it really is. And, and um, it's good and it's bad. But, you know, the way I see it is, is if we went away or if somebody said, 
you know, hey, the, the mountains are crowded because of snow. There's so many avenues for weather. You know, there's a lot of different sources. So it's not just one medium. And there's a lot, there, there's, it, it's really the reality of today. The, the knowledge base out there and the amount of information we have has really increased. But the good old days where there was no information and I was on top of things, um, you know, there's some specialty to that. You'd be driving along I-70 in Colorado at 5 a.m. and there'd be no cars on the road. You know, oh. It just doesn't happen anymore. Well, well, I'm pleased to say to the listeners that we now have Luke Stone and he has joined us as well. Welcome, Luke, to the Weather Geeks podcast. We're we're kind of in the final segment here, but I want to kind of use that segment to kind of catch up with you. Uh, just as a background on Luke, Luke is the editor of Powder Chasers and manager of the social media channels that we were just talking about. Uh, currently works full-time in clinical research, but is pursuing a degree in atmospheric sciences at the University of Utah. So I'm pretty sure you know my good friend Jim Steenberg and others there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he inherited his love of weather and snowboarding from his father while growing up in, in New England, I believe, and contributes to daily and long-range winter weather forecasts. Now, Luke, talking to um, uh, Steve, uh, it sounds like you all really are a team. You kind of work well together in terms of Steve's sort of experience and 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 chasing and so forth, and uh, the things that he's learned from you about weather and meteorology and so forth. What I'm curious about, because we heard this from Steve, tell us about sort of one of your more memorable sort of powder chase experiences. Well, I already mentioned the crystal, the snowbird chase. <laughs> yeah, we heard about that one. That was fascinating, by the way, too. Well, that's that's a tough question. There's been well, or is there anything that jumps out to you in mind that you just want to share to the the weather geeks listeners about your experience in, in powder chasing in general and how I mean, you're doing it? When he first found me on the internet, okay, he was emailing <laughs> me for information back in the early days. And I remember him chasing way up into Canada from Boston. I mean, I wow. thought he was crazy. Wow. <laughs> you want to talk yeah, about so, one of those storms? Yeah. So, yeah. What, yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. Boston to the West chase experience. What are the logistics involved in that? Yeah. I mean, before I moved out here, it was the case that, you know, I was, I was chasing storms from, you know, outside of Boston to Quebec uh, at times and, you know, you know, taking a, a, a flight uh you know out west i there are several you know storms that i I chased from massachusetts to uh tahoe before i moved to utah five years ago and you know tahoe is known for uh you know having massive multi-day several foot storm events uh due to atmospheric rivers and you know one of the first times i ever chased a storm out west it was to mammoth I think it was in 2011 and they had 21 feet in five days. Wow. I'd really seen it snow that hard because I hadn't even, you know, been outside of New England really for snowboarding. And when I got to California, it was just, you know, for several days straight, three to four inches an hour nonstop. And I couldn't even believe it snowed that hard. It was, it was pretty wild to see, especially not seeing it before. Now, these 21 inches in five days, to me, who's not really in this world, that sounds like a lot. Is that a lot or is that sort of in the middle part of the spectrum? I mean, what, I guess what I'm asking is, what's the sort of max amount of snow that you've seen over a five to seven day period? I mean, is that near the top or is that still kind of in the moderate range? No, that's definitely near the top. And, you know, it's it is probably 
uh, you know, Tahoe or maybe the Pacific Northwest that, you know, will get those uh, biggest events again due to atmospheric rivers. Um, I don't I don't think I have seen another uh, total uh, in five days surpass that. You know, there's been several you know, seven to eight foot storms in three days and, you know, totals like that, which again are, I think we're all in, in Tahoe, but for a five day period. Um, I that was 21 feet loop, right? Yeah. Not 21. Feet, yeah. 21 feet. 21 feet. Yeah. Five days. And I think it was, yeah. I think it was, yeah, I think it was December, 2011. It was definitely one of the snowiest, if not the snowiest Decembers of all time there. But Steve and I were in, uh, you know, Tahoe for the snowiest January of all time, which I think was uh, just a couple years ago. Um, and, you know, Squaw Valley had, it wasn't 21 feet in five days, but they were getting, you know, several feet uh, every couple of days, nearly the day. month. And the thing about, you know, Tahoe storms, which is a little tricky, you know, due to those atmospheric rivers, they're often a little warmer than what we want to be snowboarding in. But oftentimes within that, you know, multi-day period where there's a lot of snow, there's a, a cold front and a period where it's better quality snow. And, you know, timing uh, being there for that period versus the entire period where it's just you know, endless wet snow is, is kind of, you know, the, and wind and wind. Yeah. And we, and we talked all about those atmospheric rivers and why they are sort of these fire hoses and moisture sort of narrow ribbons, if you will, um, sort of funneling all of this moisture into this sort of elevated terrain. And then they're on the optimal meteorological conditions to give you these snow dumps, if you will. Um, as we draw to a close here, and Luke, I'm glad you were able to uh, join us here. This has been amazing. How can people get involved? And this is for either of you. How can people get involved if they want to become honorary powder chasers? Luke, you can take that. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, we certainly have a, a lot of followers that I'm sure consider themselves honorary powder chasers. That's uh, you know, why the website has, has grown so much, but, um, you know, it's, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, having a flexible schedule and then, you know, following the weather through us. And, you know, we, we do explain, you know, some of the weather concepts and how we, uh, you know, decide when to chase a storm or not in our, uh, forecasts. So people can, you know, learn a little bit of the weather uh, through that. But, um, you know, it's just a matter of, of learning the weather enough to pick the right times to go and having the flexibility to make last minute decisions uh, to chase a storm. And, and give us your uh, social media and website information one more time. Sure. It's, it's at PowderChasers. Um, PowderChasers.com is the website. We send out a weather alert whenever there's going to be deep snow somewhere primarily in the west but sometimes also in the east and on instagram at just at powder chasers as well as facebook and and, and no, no twitter site uh we go ahead and look with that one that's kind of uh in yeah i want to hear this i, I suspect yeah. there's a story there so now i want to hear it <laughs> we've got yeah <laughs> luke's been talking to me about this <laughs> Is it Powder Chaser or Pow Chase or tell me, Luke, what, what are we looking at on Twitter? Powder Chaser 1. 
Powder Chaser One. Powder, powder Chaser One. one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because we, we want to know because one for a serious reason where I am asking is when we start promoting your episode, we usually will link to your Twitter and in, in the from the Weather Geek site when we start tweeting out about your episode when it debuts. So I've got one more chase story if you have time. I do. We've got about five minutes. I, I, I'll tell you, I'll never forget this day. Um, I skied a two-foot storm in Utah, and uh, then the northern north, – the, the sections of Wyoming were looking really deep that night. And this was many years ago. I'd, I'd say at least 15 years ago. And um, I went home after skiing in Utah and woke up at 3 in the morning to drive to Jackson Hole because I knew they were going to get deep snow that next day. And I actually encountered very dangerous conditions. I was driving in at least one and a half to two and a half feet of snow in my old 1988 Audi. You know, I had these old manual shift cars, which are great, by the way. And I'm a huge believer in snow tires, by the yeah. way. For our listeners, if you're going to drive in the snow, you've got to have snow tires. In fact, yes. when I met Luke, I said to Luke, I'm not going to get in your car unless you've got snow tires. <laughs> so, um, anyway. I, it's normally a four and a half hour drive from Park City to Jackson. And I, it took me, I left at three in the morning and I pulled in at one in the afternoon. That's how wow. long it took. I mean, wow. that was, and you can imagine how tired I was. And I was frustrated because I'm thinking I'm missing first chair. I'm missing first chair. You know, I wanted to get there. I see everybody leaving as I'm coming in to the resort at Jackson. And I'm thinking, I missed it. I missed it. It's a horrible feeling in your stomach. And I actually pulled into the parking lot and I found out they had so much snow. They had 38 inches actually in about, it was around a 24 hour period. And in some cases that's too much snow to open a mountain. I mean, a lot of times mountains will remain closed, avalanche danger winds. And, and they said the mountain hasn't opened yet. And that was like the best news I ever heard. I said, I haven't uh, missed, you didn't you know? miss it. <laughs> There's nothing worse than missing out. I'd rather it didn't snow than for me to know it snowed somewhere and I missed it. But in any event, they opened up some lifts at around 2.30 that afternoon for an hour and a half, and I was there for opening. I had right. pulled into the parking lot and made it. <laughs> so your overnight drive and hazardous conditions was totally worth it. But I, I th we, we've got to end it there. This has been amazing. But before we do, it is that time of the show where we talk about our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Dr. Daniel Leathers. I know Dan, he's a colleague. Dr. Leathers is a professor of geography at the University of Delaware and a climatologist, the state climatologist, I believe, for the state of Delaware. Back in 2018, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Association of Geographers for all of his contributions to the fields of geography and climatology. Like our guest today, he loves snow and has always been fascinated by weather and its synoptic forces. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. I want to thank Steve and Luke. Thank you both for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you. Glad to be on. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to get you on, Luke. And um, continue to listen. We, we, we're really growing our listenership, and we appreciate all of our Weather Geeks listeners out there. You're honorary Weather Geeks to us, and uh, we'll see you next time.